Good morning, First Baptist Church of Gray Gables. I hope you all are having a, a wonderful week. Um, happy Veterans Day to, to those of you um, who I didn't get a chance to talk to this week, and, and so thankful for those uh, who have served our country and served our country well. Um, so many veterans in our, our church family, I hope they've been reached out to and encouraged and thanked for their service. Um, and if not, then I will say now, thank you so much. Uh, we are able to do what we do um, in the, the way that we are able to do it, particularly because uh, men um, uh, and women have laid their lives on the line um, for the freedoms we have in this country. And so I want to say thank you. Happy belated Veterans, Today, Veterans Day to many in our congregation. Uh, and I hope you're excited um, to dig into God's word with me today. Just one brief announcement. Uh, the, the October financial report is ready. You can call the office and request a copy of that uh, from Ms. Z, and so we hope you get an opportunity to do that. Uh, we are going to uh, be all throughout the scriptures today again in our study through church polity. Today we're studying, studying congregationalism, and so before we dive right in, let's go to the Lord in, in a word of prayer this morning. Father, we are considerably grateful to be able um, to, to record this today and to, uh, to be with you, Lord, as we believe um, you have uh, set us apart to, to grow and to be more like your son Jesus. And Lord, we, uh, we want to make sure what we're doing here and how we organize and structure our church is centered on the principles we find in your word. So help us, uh, Lord, seek your word, help us open our eyes and see where we may be lacking in a particular area. And Lord, uh, we pray that you would have your way for your glory in us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, I don't think it's too far of a stretch to say that we could all probably agree that we live in a culture um, that is very individualistic. Uh, is very, uh, everything in our culture these days is, is centered on complimenting and encouraging you about you in a consumeristic culture. And we see this in so many various ways from the comfort of ourselves we see in a culture and we live in a culture who will create and even destroy other people. It's about what we want. Everything in our day and age is taken to be a matter of personal preference. Ideas are sometimes just in the air. In the 18th century, the big idea was liberty. In 19th century, the big idea was uh, progress and, and such ideas kind of serve as the background noise of an age that is just pervading to us and so much so that we don't even consider that these ideas are progressing in the way they are when we're in the midst of them. Well, one idea that was really prominent in the New Testament and which is almost invisible in our day and age of individualism is the idea of church, of assembly, of congregation, of people. Now, don't misunderstand me. Now, we know that there are a lot of large churches in America today, uh, churches that are apparently prospering, even uh, with lots of members and lots of programs. But the truly corporate idea of the church is something that seems to be lost and dissolved in uh, the acids of our individualistic culture, our consumeristic culture. What do you think? What do you think that church is all about? And I know this is particularly hard for those of you who are pandemic, who are not able to, to be in church with the body of believers, but even in this day and age, in this culture you find yourself in, 
why do you think you should have a longing to be together with God's church? What is it all about? Do we serve you well when you are able to come to church? Is the temperature just right for you? Or do we sing enough old hymns for you? Um, maybe you, you don't like that. Maybe uh, we think about the sermon. You know how, sermon, how long the sermon is going to be. In fact, I highly believe that probably what's happening is as soon as you click on the video online is the first place you look is that little time area at the bottom of the video to see how long that sermon is going to be this morning. Are we meeting your individual taste well um, when we're able to gather on Sunday mornings? Uh, remember this. We don't gather together as a church simply so that you can have your private devotional time with just a lot of other people in the room. No. When we're able to come together as a church family, we are participating in the life of a particular church. Even now, even in the midst of the pandemic we're facing, this is what church is. When we gather together as a congregation, it's not merely as individual consumers who happen to temporarily share taste and be in the same room while they do it. We actually come assembling as a living institution, a viable organism, one body. And so I know that this is probably hard to hear for those of you who are, are regarding your own safety in this area and, and particularly staying home in this time. But I wonder, um, when you have that longing that you should have, because remember, viewing this in video is not the way it's supposed to be. When you have that longing to come back to church, when you have that uh, placed in you, I wonder why. Why is it do people desire to come to church? Why do you come to church? Why did you tune in this morning? And listen, no one else can answer that question for you. I can't answer it for you, certainly. Maybe even your spouse or best friend doesn't. And I feel as if our lives are so busy and reflective that you may not even know the reason why you tuned in this morning or why you come to church or long to come to church. So take a moment to consider. Why do you come to church? Let me ask you a question that I think might help get you to the core of the matter. What is the use of the church? What is the church for? When you understand something about the church and what's it, uh, what's it, what it's about, then the Christian life becomes a lot more than a simple list of do's and don'ts. You begin to understand that the church is the manifestation of the living God in this world, and that is an incredible privilege to be accounted among her number. That is what we're looking at this morning, and again, the third of four topical sermons and studies on church polity and church structure. We looked at deacons two weeks ago, last week. We looked at the office of elder, and this week we want to look at the idea of congregationalism. Congregationalism. Next week we'll finish with church membership, but again, we'll be skipping all over the New Testament here, and so first we're going to understand this idea of congregationalism, and I know that's a, that's a lot of syllables there, uh, and so let's first look at what it means. 
Congregationalism, what is it, what does it mean? Well, people have often misunderstood this idea of congregationalism in many ways. Some have presented it as sort of a lone ranger ideology or uh, independency. Uh, separatism is a word that it's been called. So, um, in fact, one writer has defined it as the claim of individual congregations to act as if they were alone in the world independently. Uh, of all other Christians. But on the other hand, some of the people who love congregationalism and are some of its champions have presented it as just a straight and simple democracy, tying it together with our inalienable rights as human beings. Well, I really don't think that either one of those two camps, the separatist camp or the democracy camp, are very good pictures of what the New Testament portrays to us in the way of church life together. So on the one hand, congregationalism is uh, in no way prevents cooperation with other congregations and things like missions or education, evangelism, disaster relief, or so many other things. Now, it does mean that nobody outside the church can mandate something on us, for example, in a matter of discipline or doctrine. And so relying on the clarity of Scripture, perhaps more than any other way people organize our churches together, we who are congregational assume that God will lead his people as a whole. Not just a bishop off somewhere or elders here, but people as a whole to understand who should be recognized among them as members, who should be recognized among them as leaders, what should be believed and what should be done. Now, some people dismiss this as just... Uh, the idea of congregation, they dismiss it as a reflection of how we function politically. They say things like, well, did you ever notice that congregationalism kind of popped up around the same time democracy began to be uh, invoked politically? But I'm convinced that's not the case. In fact, this has kind of been the way it's always been. In Clement's first letter, the church at Corinth, which was written way back in 96 AD, we read of elders being commissioned, and I quote, with the full consent of the church. Now, that is 1,600 years before people like John Locke uh, um, invested in the idea of democracy. He had nothing to do with those early Christians and understanding that they their lives were to be organized, structured together. I could give other examples, but certainly Christians in the past have understood this idea of congregationalism be taught in the scriptures. And so let's define it. Congregationalism is simply the understanding that the last and final court of appeal in the matter of the life of a local church is not the bishop of Rome. It's not the bishop of Constantinople. It is not the bishop of Washington, D.C. It is not some international body. It is not some assembly or conference or convention. It is not the president of a denomination or a chairman of a board of trustees. It is not even a group of elders inside a local church. It is not the pastor. The last and final court of appeal in the matters of life of a local congregation is and really must be the congregation itself. Uh, This seems to be evidenced by the entirety of the New Testament in matters of doctrine and discipline. In fact, if you're taking notes, there are four particular matters in the New Testament that serve as examples of this being the case. So let's look at those together. First, in matters of disputes between Christians. 
in matters of disputes to be between Christians, it seems that the last and final court of appeal is the congregation itself. In fact, hopefully you've got your Bibles open to Matthew chapter 18. And look with me in Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 17. Jesus is told of a dispute between brothers there in that particular text. And look what he says in verse 15. He says, moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established and if he refuses to hear them tell it to who to the church but if he refuses even to hear the church let him be to you like um, like a heathen and a tax collector now notice there to whom one finally appeals what is the final uh, judge of the matter it is as we read the church that is the whole local congregation. Now, if you consider the passage we looked at two weeks ago from Acts chapter 6, we see again an important event in the life of the early church. There was a problem over the distribution of food among the widows of the church. So much so that the complaining got the apostles' attention. And look with me again there in Acts chapter 6, verses 2 through 5. Let's read this again. It says, Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and the ministry of the word. And then notice verse 5 of Acts 6. And the saying, please the whole multitude. And then Luke goes on to name those that the church as a whole chose. So following those examples, the apostle Paul taught in the New Testament that the unity of the church is held in trust under God by the congregation as a whole. In fact, in our scripture reading this Sunday, we read 1 Corinthians 5. And if you haven't read that yet, you can pause right now and read that together. That's our scripture reading for the day. Uh, and so remember, Paul, when he's writing to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 5, he wrote to them about their taking their problems outside the church to be judged. Look at what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 4. He goes on to say in chapter 6, do you appoint those who are least esteemed by the church to judge? He's saying you should be able to take care of your own unity yourself. You shouldn't have to go outside the church to settle matters of dispute. The congregation as a whole is the final court of appeal held out in Scripture. And so this is true in matters of dispute between Christians, but it's also true in matters of doctrine. Uh, consider all the letters of the New Testament. It is so true in the matters of doctrine. I think all of the letters of the New Testament, except for the pastoral epistles, which are First and Second Timothy and Titus, and then also probably the book of Philemon, every one of the other letters of the New Testament were written to churches as a whole, instructing them as a whole on what their responsibilities were. Even in the matters most fundamental in understanding the teachings of Scripture, the doctrine of the Bible. Things like the definition of the gospel. The congregation is clearly the last and final earthly court of appeal. 
The most clear example of this is is probably in Galatians chapter 1, where Paul calls on the congregations of what must have been fairly young Christians at the time. We think he was probably writing Galatians around 50 AD, certainly within 15 years of the founding of these churches, maybe much sooner than that. And Paul calls these congregations to sit in judgment of angelic and apostolic preachers. Even himself, he says in verse 8 of Galatians 1, if they should preach any other gospel than the one which the Galatians had accepted, Paul trusts the congregation as a whole to bear with that responsibility. Paul even makes this point again at the end of his ministry, at the end of 2 Timothy chapter 4, when he describes the coming tide of false teachers that there is going to be in the church, he particularly blames, we see in verse 3, these. He says, those who will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. Now, that's very interesting. Paul is not just placing the blame on false teachers there. Whether in selecting them or paying for them or approving of their teaching or in simply just consenting to listen repeatedly to false doctrine, the congregation that Paul envisions and is speaking to here is culpable in the false teaching. They are to be held as sharing part of the guilt for the false teaching that was being given in the church of Ephesus. So even in doctrinal definition, the congregation as a whole seems to be the final earthly court of appeal that is held out to us in Scripture. Not only do we see this in matters of dispute between Christians, in matters of doctrines between Christians, but we also see this in matters of discipline. Again, as hopefully you read in our Scripture reading of 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul appealed to the whole congregation repeatedly in that passage. He does this. Not just to the elders, the pastors and leaders of that congregation, uh, but to the congregation itself. It's very interesting. When you look at 1 Corinthians 5, you look through all the imperatives there. They are aimed towards the congregation as a whole to act. So this is not merely a matter for Paul the Apostle or whatever elders that happen to be in Corinthian church at that time. This is a matter for the congregation as a whole. You understand why it must be that way, right? They had all accepted this one into their number as a member, and they were all now tolerating this one who had committed this heinous sin. And so they were now all implicated in his sin. They were faced with a choice. They had to choose. It didn't matter if they didn't want to. Their lack of choice would have been a choice. They could either turn loose of this man who is in continual unrepentant sin, or they could turn loose of their claim to be Christ's disciples. And so in matters of church discipline, the whole congregation is held out as the final court in Scripture. And also, not only that, number four, not only does it matter in, uh, in matters of disputes, of, uh, of discipline and doctrine, but it matters in the idea of church membership as well. I'm sorry I couldn't think of another D there, so you'll have to excuse my lack of alliteration. It matters in church membership that congregationalism functions in this particular way. In fact, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8, um, about someone. We don't know if even it was the man in 1 Corinthians 5, but look at what he writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. He says this. He says, This punishment, which was inflicted by the majority, is sufficient for such a man. 
so that on the contrary, you ought rather to forgive and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. See, the context is that the church as a whole had enacted punishment on whoever this was. And in so acting, notice, as it says, they had done so by the majority. That is the majority of those church members who would have voted. That is by the greater part of the membership consenting. This punishment, praise God, seemed to have worked. It was, as Paul has said here, sufficient for him. Now, Paul writes to the church as a whole, urging them to accept this repentant man and readmit him into the church, reaffirm their love for him. But isn't it interesting that Paul can do nothing but just exhort the church in this way? Because in matters of church membership, the congregation as a whole must be the final court of appeal. The congregation would have to make this decision, and that is the way it is in Scripture. And so hopefully that gives an understanding of what congregationalism means. It's the idea that in the matters of the life of a local, particular church, the final court of appeal in matters of dispute, in matters of doctrine, in matters of discipline, and in matters of church membership is the congregation Itself. And so if you've ever wondered why we have business meetings and why it's important that our attendance for business meetings be high, it is because of this. It is the church's responsibility to discuss matters in this particular way. The church membership, that is. Now, I could go a lot longer on this point in various texts of Scripture to show this, but I will move on. Let's go on to the next question. We saw congregationalism, what it means. Now, let's look at congregationalism. Why does it matter? What is the point? Why is congregationalism important? If that's what congregationalism is, the first main point there, then the second thing under congregationalism is why then does it matter? Congregationalism It is simply the reality of our lives together. On the one hand, as Christians in churches, and so I think the challenge for us in one sense is is not to have to create this, to create congregationalism, uh, but just to recognize that this is the reality, that we are to order our church and our church lives appropriately. So I think we should respect the structures that God has created and trust in his wisdom in doing so. See, the passage we've considered in the New Testament, they're very clear, aren't they? God has not seemed to finally trusted his church on earth to a group of elders. The final stewardship in one, in one sense seems to be held by the congregation corporately. Besides that, I think if we look and understand, ask the question why congregationalism matters, um, history, uh, I think, gives us clearly the fact that the verdict is in. While, listen, while no certain polity, certain church structure, uh, way of organizing our churches has prevented churches from error, from declining, or even from dying, as I just look over history, if I'm just being honest with you, I can look over history and know that the Bishop of Rome has wrought havoc on self-confessed Christians in confusing them. Not that that's always been the Bishop of Rome's intent, I won't say that, But there has been a created confusion about what it means to be a Christian uh, because of a lack of understanding of congregationalism. It has nothing to do with our own works. It has nothing fundamentally to do with our merit. 
we know this, it solely has to do with God's grace. And so congregationalism is biblical. That's why it matters. That's why it's important. It doesn't mean that congregations are inerrant. Not saying that at all. Congregations make mistakes. Nevertheless, congregationalism seems to be the reality that is there in the scriptures and recognized in scripture. And in just reflecting and thinking about this particular idea, I have often wondered, could it be this? Could it be that the gospel itself is so simple and clear and the relationship that we have with God by the Holy Spirit and giving us a new birth is so real that the collection of those together who believe the gospel, the collection of those together who know God are simply the best guardians of the gospel? We are not all full-time employees here in some denominational headquarters far off in an ivory tower who are paid to care for the institution per se. We are people who by and large do other things throughout the week and yet we are loving Christ and serving him in this local church. We gather as a local congregation and what unites us and gives us interest in being here is what God has done for us in Christ. And should that gospel ever be lost, I am not surprised that it would alarm a more local congregation than it would some institutional interest off in some headquarters somewhere. So I'm not surprised that this is the case. It seems to be what we see in Scripture. So if that's why congregationalism matters, because it's scriptural and biblical, well then let's ask this very practical question. How does it work? Get to the point of how this practice takes place in our church. What does it look like for us as a local congregation to embrace congregationalism and how does it function within our lives together? Well, if we are congregationalists, then we ask questions like, okay, how then do we respond to some of those texts we viewed last week about the leadership of elders? And let me turn your attention to just one of those texts in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. The text says this, Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give an account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. Let's dwell on that text a little bit. Because this text doesn't mean, of course, that the writer of Hebrews was telling those Christians to become uh, simply the hand waiters to their leaders. Well, I, I, but I think the seriousness in mind he has of the topic is clear. These leaders, the leaders, the elders of the church are going to give an account for their work. And so it's an important matter. Now, this corporate responsibility that we all have, I'm not suggesting that it leaves you to operate in what we would call the committee as a whole, where you are one giant congregation delegated group uh, that makes every decision together, right? Uh, so for instance, we don't have to gather in business meetings after every Sunday to determine what I'm going to preach next week. That's, that's not our role in any way, shape, or form. It's not what he means there. It would just be depressing if that were the case. I'm not suggesting the Bible is even teaching that for a moment. We should give thanks to God for the leaders he puts among us. As we saw last week, we should recognize them and, and trust them. But we see words here like obey and be submissive. And they're not words that we're really used to hearing. But they are words that if we read the New Testament are applied everywhere. 
to, to Christians in society, to Christians in the workplace, at home, in our marriages, with God and within the church. And, and those words, obey and be submissive, they do require with them a certain amount of trust. It has been said that such trust must be earned. And I completely understand what is meant by that. Uh, it is certainly partly true. But at the same time, the kind of trust we are called to give our fellow humans in this life, whether it be family or friends, employers or government officials, or even leaders in the church, can never finally be earned. It must be given as a gift, a gift in faith, more in trust of the God who gives than of those whom we see as God's gifts to us right now. And I'll say this, it is a serious spiritual deficiency in a church either to have leaders who are untrustworthy or members who are incapable of trusting. I've seen a considerable amount of damage in churches where that is the case. And I pray that neither deficiency would mark us as a church family. In fact, something that we give out to our new church members is going to be found there in your notes. And let me just encourage you, if you don't have your notes out in front of you, uh, go to This Week at Gray Gables. It's found on the website. It should be crystal clear how to get there. It can be found on our Facebook page and download the form of notes. Because what I have in the notes this week is a graph. And this is a graph we give to all of our uh, new members in our new members class that is very helpful. And it helps kind of present how the decision-making process works in light of elder-led churches and congregations led churches. So what we have here um, is we have one line that measures the increasing clarity of a particular issue, and then we have one line that measures the increasing seriousness of that issue. And then we divide into four quadrants here. We have those things that are not serious but are clear, things that are not serious or clear, things that are both serious and clear, and those things that are certainly serious but not clear. Now bear with me. I want to break down those four quadrants and kind of help you see how this really works out. As a congregation, when we consider those things that are not serious but very clear, things like should we paint the outside or inside of our building purple, right? Uh, there will generally be no discussion there because we know that uh, that's not at all very serious and pretty clear from within the church that that's not what we want. Uh, so we generally don't discuss that, though under the heading of any other business that we talk about our church membership business at the, at the business meetings when we end saying, is there any other business we need to discuss? You never know what's going to come up at those things. And so sometimes they can be talked about. But generally, those are things we don't even make decisions on because they don't come up. There's also this category, though, and another quadrant of things that are not serious or not clear. For example, uh, whether or not we at the end of our church gathering should stand at the back of the church or the front of the church or at this door or at, at that door where the pastor should stand. Well, I think in, in business meetings, there's opportunity for us to have discussions about that if there is time about some of those things, even if they're not the most important thing. So we may have discussions on things like that, even if they're not the most important things. But... Things that come up uh, for us as member meetings, uh, in member meetings, are usually more serious. 
Like when you get to that quadrant up there that has things that are very serious and very clear. For example, should we continue to require the belief that Jesus is God for members to be able to join this church? Uh, for people to be able to become a member of our church? Should we require the belief that Jesus is God in order to have that happen? Well, I, I hope there will almost always be agreement with that. And I hope while I'm one of the elders here, we never have a difficult discussion on those kind of issues. But should there be serious errors by the elders in either doctrine or discipline? Congregation, this is where you shine. This is where you're supposed to shine. This is when bodies of elders and things above the local church have often failed denomination after denomination after denomination in the United States of America. There have been godly Bible-preaching congregations who have survived, and it's because those congregational people love the Lord and know the Lord and His Word. And in the New Testament, this is really where we see the congregation come into play. The congregation isn't the steering wheel but the congregation is the emergency break. And so if you consider the examples we have seen in the New Testament of congregationalism, they're brought up with, with deals. If the church in Jerusalem had split, uh, thinking of Acts chapter 6, when the daily distribution had come up, that's a decision for the church. Were the church at Corinth to forfeit their call to holiness and lead people astray about what it means to be a Christian? If the church at Corinth refused to recognize genuine repentance, on the other hand, would the churches of Galatia forfeit the gospel? Would the church at Ephesus accept false teaching? In these clearest matters of congregational action in the New Testament, the greatest of issues are the ones at stake. And yet, we have one more quadrant to go. There are other issues that are really more common in our experience, which are really the stuff of most of the elder business that we're praying would, would be extended here. Remember last week, we were praying that God would raise up elders to help Brother Justin and I within this local congregation. And that's in the last category, which is uh, serious, but not generally clear. There's not uh, a general clearness of where the congregation stands or what we should do about that. And examples of that. Uh, should we recognize this person as an elder? Should we affirm this membership action? Should we allocate this serious expense? Should we make this directional decision as a congregation? And this is really where I think it's most important for us as a congregation to listen to our elders. And in a lot of ways, this is the very quadrant where the elders most particularly serve the church. Rather than the church attempting to act as a committee as a whole or have the pastor alone making all the decisions or a particular chairman of some committee making decisions, when the elders bring a recommendation to you, you should be able to trust that the information gathering has gone on, that interviews have been done, that much time has been spent in prayer, perhaps much time has been spent in the scriptures, certainly debates have gone on throughout uh, your elders. Many factors should be considered. And this is the crucial area where we as a church should be able to enjoy the leadership that God gives us and prosper by it. Now, again, church, this is a, this is a call for why one of the reasons that Justin and I, it's laid on our hearts and it's laid according to the scriptures, why we want to expand our eldership here. Why we're asking for you to pray that godly men would be elected to this office so that we can join together in the help of some of these decision makings. We want to serve you well and it is quite literally our privilege to do that. 
And so uh, I, I think it's one of the important things to be reminded here. Because I think if we reject that leadership, we can pay the price. Our basic attitude as we approach something in Hebrews 13 here needs to be that we must be able to either trust our elders or replace them. But we simply can't live in a reality where we acknowledge leaders and then we don't follow them. If you disagree with the elders on a particular decision, I I think it's a good call to have a good reason for that. And not only that, but then to come and talk to us about it. I mean, other than the Bible, you church are our main source of information. And so often, uh, conversations, when you have come to talk to me about something, has been very helpful in me understanding the particular situation. Again, we want to serve you well. And listen, the writer in Hebrews says, strategize to make the church leaders work not burdensome, but a joy. This is the writer to the Hebrews. He says, you will make your leaders a blessing to you when that is your motive. Church, you belong to God. You do not belong to me. You do not belong to Pastor Justin or any other elders God may raise up from within this church. And at least on speaking on behalf of Brother Justin, I can say we well know that. Uh, There will come a day where Brother Justin and myself will give an account of our stewardship of you. Where we stand before God, that is our calling, and that is our charge for him. And I think it's always helpful for Christians to have in mind the seriousness of the position of those in authority that the church have, particularly in matters of teaching. Remember uh, what James says in James chapter 3, verse 1. He says, My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that you will receive a stricter judgment. The account that we preachers finally give is not to you. Our final account is to God. In fact, I I came across this, remembering this account that leaders will have to give to the Lord. The local congregation uh, should trust those who dare to step in this awesome responsibility and serve as elders in the church. In fact, John Brown, a teacher of ministers in Scotland, a hundred years ago, he wrote a letter of paternal counsels to, to one of his people, pupils. Uh, and this pupil was one who was newly ordained, and he was ordained over a small congregation. And listen to what John wrote wrote to this young man. He says, I know the vanity of your heart and that you will feel mortified that your congregation is very small in comparison with those of your brethren around you. But assure yourself on the word of an old man that when you come to give an account of them to the Lord Christ at his judgment seat, you will think you have had enough. Friends, let me just tell you, church family, you you may not like something that I do and, and that at times may cause Uh, some momentary problems. There's an area for that in my life. I may learn. I may change my mind on some of it. But I don't want you to ever think that the main thing I'm worried about is whether or not there are more or less people in this room or tuning into this broadcast. Uh, Whether or not you are more or less pleased with something I've said and done is not the main matter of importance in my life. Those things have their roles. But I promise you, That God, as my witness, what I am most concerned about is what God will say about what I have done with my stewardship over each one of you. And so if you ever see Brother Justin or myself or the elders that maybe God would raise up here serving a particular membership action, 
or taking a particular membership action, do not think that we take those things lightly. It is the most serious thing I do in my entire life, and I mean that. Many churches languish today in an evil combination of selfish leaders and stubborn members. Well, congregations like that, by the grace of God, I think usually shrink and wither away. May uh, May they go more quickly for the sake of the gospel. That's hard for me to say, but it's true. But some churches have wonderful congregations, but have recognized the wrong people as pastors and elders, people who show themselves to be at best careless and stupid and at worst charlatans. I have seen that God will provide for such churches in his grace. He remembers his people. He he blesses them. But then again, some churches have wonderful, godly leaders, but congregations full of complacent, self-centered people. And so if such a pastor can stay and patiently teach, the congregation can be renewed. If not, such a congregation will, I think, bear a strange judgment on that final day for wounding good shepherds of the flock of Christ. But the healthy church, the the church that I believe the Lord has set our path on and that we're desiring to be, the healthy church, though filled with imperfect members and imperfect leaders, is marked by godly initiative and godly service, godly teaching and godly obedience, godly leadership and godly membership. And that broader idea of membership is what we will examine next week. So that's it for our idea of congregationalism. I hope you have understood a little bit more about why we do some of the things we do, why we uh, have business meetings here, why we vote on business meetings in particular matters of the utmost clarity and importance. And I hope you've seen crystal clear your role, what it means to be part of a local congregation. We're gonna look at membership next week. I'm certainly excited about that. Let's go to Lord and, and pray for these particular things we've seen. Father, We pray that we would be holy in our structure. Uh, Father, that we would strive for uh, the biblical reality of what you've laid before us in your word when it comes to, Lord, not only the office of deacon or the office of elders, but the idea of congregationalism. That uh, the court of final appeal and matters, uh, final earthly appeal and matters of doctrine, discipline, dispute, and church membership are to be the congregation itself. And so, Lord, help us really take hold of what it means to be part of your church. May we see this as an awesome um, and important responsibility. May we have unity together. And I thank you, Father, uh, for the unity you have placed in this last four years between uh, the elders and this congregation. We pray that it strengthens, that the trust would grow in these particular scenarios. And Lord, that we would be good stewards of uh, what you've shown us in shepherding uh, this beloved church. Uh, And Father, this church would continue to show their trust in the leadership of the elders as well. Father, we just pray for unity because we pray um, in unity for the sake of the gospel. We go forth united in Christ to proclaim your good news among the nations. Would you equip us and encourage us in this way? And may we be more like Christ because of how we structure our church, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. As always, church, I know this is a difficult one, especially for those of you who are pandemic and shut down. Um, we'd, We'd happily... Uh, be able to ask any question, answer any questions you might have and encourage you in any way. We love you. We miss you. We hope um, that we'll be able to see you soon. And we are always here for you. Um, we praise God for you. Have a wonderful, wonderful Sunday um, and be blessed. Thank you.